Welcome, Chuck. It's your your second effort here on Maria Report today. I've referred to you as both a mid-inning and late-inning reliever. <laughs> well, and plus uh, I was uh, up early for Polish television and uh, we got stood up by CNN, which is actually... <clears throat> Always good, but it, it's good to be here with my radio buddy, Michael. Thank you. You're here too. And we are ready to slice and dice. And uh, man, it is definitely Kherson that is, that is really picking up here, Alan, isn't it? It sure is. And Chuck, I think the way to begin with Kherson before we move to the map is to talk about preconditions that Ukraine needs to achieve to make any Dnipro crossing in force, possible and successful. It, these are actually some of the preconditions. They're all of the preconditions that General Zaluzhny laid out for changing the pace and look of this. We can look back onto a recent Russian failure and see what a bad river crossing looks like. And that was a little over a year ago. Russia attempted to cross the Severnonesk River in the vicinity of Kremena, not exactly close to it, but south of Kremena. They attempted to do that with a brigade task group plus a little more. And that effort came, was about to that date, it was the largest Russian defeat since World War II. And here are the things that Russia lacked in that, in that crossing engagement. And everything I'm going to tick off is in Russian doctrine. So they either didn't find it convenient to meet these preconditions. They forgot about them. They went ahead and tried to do it anyway. But here are the things that you need. And some of these things Ukraine won't have, can't have, and will not have conceivably for years. You need air superiority. You need to make sure that other guys' aviation strike missions don't get through to either your logistics base, your uh, on the upriver side, or your bridgehead on the downriver side, and that your forces are not open to attack uh, from the air. You need artillery dominance. Principally, you need the ability and the number and volume of fire to smother any Russian artillery that is targeting any of the aboves, your upstream logistics, your crossing point, or your maneuvering elements on the South Bank. Because we are in this 21st century war, electronic warfare used to be way down on the scale, right? That used to be for code breakers and jamming enemy missile radars in it. It almost had nothing to do with the exception of perhaps communication security, but it had almost nothing to do with a rifle squad, guys doing dirt soldiering and at the grunt level. Now you need electronic warfare capabilities that are organic part of your rifle squad. If you can't diminish the performance of enemy first-person drones, enemy target designator drones, longer-term UAV reconnaissance systems, you're doomed. Okay, so there's another. That's one of the invisible preconditions that has to be met. Then, and here's another place where Ukraine is against the wall. 
as long as Putin keeps squirting cruise missiles and Shahid drones at Ukrainian population centers, Ukraine is going to have to use those air defense assets to defend its cities rather than crossing points on the Dnipro. Third precondition for river crossings, this is going to sound maybe counterintuitive, you need to rehearse. You need to practice taking a largely distributed and dis dispersed logistics profile, be able to draw on the necessary logistics, troops, vehicles crossing in certain order, maintaining unit integrity. Think of that as a big funnel on one end. It has to all go down the funnel. That funnel crosses the river. Then the funnel opens up the other way. So you can disperse all of your troops, turn them into maneuver elements. And the more you are doing this in any sort of a contested environment, if you're doing this in a situation where you don't have air superiority, you don't have intelligence dominance, you, you don't have the air defense assets, your EW situation changes day to day. It makes these things harder and harder, Alan. And this is, th these are some of the burdens that Ukraine is laboring right now. And almost every single one of those was mentioned by General Zaluzhny. Yeah, so Chuck, I, it was, I'm going to say, eight weeks ago that uh, a Ukrainian raiding party went across the Dnipro to Kozachi Lahari. A Russian major, maybe it was even a Russian colonel, a, a, a high-up intelligence asset. Do you think that this operation now has developed differently because they were able to get intelligence they didn't have before that cross-river raid? They acquired it by capturing uh, a pretty high-level Russian officer. Uh, Chuck, you, you may be speaking into a muted mic, or I, uh, maybe my I'm, question just took you a back there. <laughs> no, I definitely was looking into a uh, muted mic. The, the more that I examine that Kozachi Leary and the sort of fabulous things that came from it, we were probably looking at a very long-planned, specifically targeted operation. It unfolded something like this. A naval special warfare element crossed the river, uh, gobbled up a couple of Russian observation posts, and that is usually two guys together in a foxhole watching the river. So they were snuck up on Daniel Boone. They were grabbed. The Ukrainians got on their radio, communicated to company headquarters and said, we've captured six Ukrainian uh, infiltrators. Wake up the boss and have him come down here. And the major in question got in his Jeep with 15 or 20 guys, rolled down the road to Kozachi Leary and wound up getting captured. He didn't just get captured with all his papers and information. He flipped. He turned. Within hours, he was making videos for Ukraine. So we may have been looking at a managed defection. We may have looked at an operation that they knew this was a disaffected person. They lured him into this trap. But what has evolved from this is Ukraine gained knowledge of Russian defensive positions, locations of minefields, patterns of movement, radio call signs. It was an absolute bonanza. And Kozachi Larry 
soon became almost an anchor point for this ongoing operation. And I was on with Nuno today, and we were talking about how over the last eight or 10 weeks, this has gone from a scattering of beach landing sites on the south bank of the Dnipro. One around the Anatovsky Bridge, overlooking Oleshki, then one at Kozachi Leri, then crossings north of Krinky, and then across the Dnipro itself, then a crossing and developed at the, at the rail bridge. And what's happened, Alan, over the last, let's say two weeks, those beach United, those beach landing sites, which is a very tenuous place, right? That's where you signal the SEAL team to come in and extract you if you're an agent. It's just a little covert site, but those have expanded now and they're linked up. And we are really looking at, if not Ukrainian control, then a denied area has been made for the Russians from the Anatovsky Bridge all the way to Krinky. And there are Ukrainian units in contact, one town to the east in Krasunka. This has really developed. And it's one of those things, the more it develops, the more quickly it develops still. Also, I want to take a quick look at terrain truck. Uh, on the north bank of the Dnipro, that's where Kherson City largely is. The north bank is elevated. It's a, it's much higher than the south bank, which as you say is, is swampy. Like how much, uh, work can Ukraine accomplish from that high northern bank, either with, uh, artillery or, or with, uh, electronic warfare? Chuck, you have a sticky mic button tonight. I do. And I am a sticky knucklehead. Hey, so the higher you can get your antennas, uh, into the air, the, the wider the range for your electronics. And that goes from, for radio, electronic warfare, electronic countermeasures. It, it's all the same game. Interesting. I was reading some, uh, assessments just before we came on. And on this earlier map today, the 12, 1259 November, Ukraine is conducting, if not swarm attacks with drones, and I don't want to use the word swarm because that means inability between AI-empowered drones, but we are seeing waves of drone attacks, and by the scores, 20, 30, 40, 100 drone strikes. Ukraine has, it's interesting, I'm glad you brought up that higher elevation. Ukraine is now hitting Russian targets with first-person drones at the range of 15 miles and more. So that's incredible. What they are concentrating on, and again, with this terrain here, we've got a mixture of swamp, sand dune, forest, all sorts of impediments topologically. What that does, though, it, it confines Russian logistics to the roads, and it greatly constrains Russia's ability to maneuver. If you get off a road in this area, you better be on foot or you better be in a tracked vehicle. And with this increased drone attack profile, if you are in the open and you are in a Russian vehicle, you're going to eat it. You, you aren't going to make it. 
And we've seen the Russians already, they're, they're transitioning because they have to, this is not an optimal solution. They are increasing the number of civilian vehicles they steal from Ukrainians, and they're pressing those into service as ad hoc logistics and scouting vehicles, and it isn't working. So we're, we're seeing some of the preconditions being met for a larger crossing. I don't, I'm not sure I think it's imminent yet though, Alan. Do you think that a drone superiority and Ukraine may have achieved this in this area of operation is drone superiority together with electronic warfare, a, a substitute for air superiority? It is the sort of, yeah, it is the air sats substitute for it. Ukraine has been brilliant about doing this the whole war. Russia is still flying 10 or 20 times the number of aviation strike missions that Ukraine can get off the ground. That's big, 20 or 30 times. So they, they found a place where they can deliver the ordinance, right? And they've done that by the democratization of air support, by making first-person drones organic, part of every rifle squad. And we, we've seen Ukraine do these. If you were to give Ukraine a GBU bomb, aviation bomb, 500 pounds, it is filled with submunitions, cluster bombs designed to be dropped out of a F-18 Hornet and strike a Russian column in progress and wipe it out. Ukrainians are cutting those open, removing each one of the bomblets and attaching it to a first-person drone. And that's the way they're delivering those munitions and putting them exactly where they want them. Where one of those bombs dropped from a Hornet, it goes off at 100 feet and it scatters these bombs all over a target area, the beaten zone. And it's really left to chance and bomblet density that it takes out the target. But Ukraine is really masterfully filling in the gap. They won't have the sort of air superiority or close air support profile to match the Russians for years. The F-18 is not going to solve that problem. But in the meantime, in this first 21st century war, Ukraine is teaching us all a lot about what you can do if you don't have an air force. And just the way they taught us what you can do if you don't have a Navy. It's absolutely a, a brilliant innovation to load those FPV drones with these bombs. We've seen some video right from the south bank of the Dnipro of how effective that approach can be. I think I've seen such video. Have I, Chuck? Absolutely. They just today, a video was released of them hitting uh, a layer two electronic warfare complex. And you have got a $47 bomblet attached to a $1,000 drone taken out a $10 million electronic warfare uh, system. It, here's the other thing that, that, that amazes me. Like I have said before, look, I've run some projects through DARPA. I've done a bunch of stuff. When you're trying to move the technological needle this much, if I had a plan that I took to DARPA 10 years ago saying, look, 
let's take all these cluster bomb munitions out of where they are and the way you deliver them now. And I've got an idea. I want to put them all on DGI Mavic drones and I'll get teenagers to fly them into the, into the target. They would have laughed you out of, uh, Washington. You know, that was too much. It would have taken too much to prove that to the powers that be. That is how inherently conservative the military mindset is. It would have taken 10 years to get this project just to the point where you could test it in the desert. Ukraine has done that in the last, what, 400 days? And they've made this a weapon of war that every rifle squad going forward in armed conflict is going to have. And the people who've discovered this the hard way were the Russians. I also read, uh, Chuck, that right now the weather is helping Ukraine in the, in crossing the Dnipro, especially with, because they're doing it at night largely or in the very early hours before dawn. There's a lot of mist that's rising from the Dnipro, and this is concealing what Ukraine is doing. It's, it's, it's nature's smoke cover, and they're benefiting from it. It, they absolutely are. And it's 47 degrees there, 47 Fahrenheit, which is what, three or four degrees Celsius. Uh, uh, it's mostly cloudy today. I think Friday it's not going to rain, but all next week it's going to rain. And you talk about that. I always bang on about perfect operating weather, right? It is that cold, miserable, wet, rainy, windy night that conceals your motion. Conceals noise. Whoever it is that is supposed to be on guard waiting for you, it makes them miserable, inattentive. You hit them at that circadian low somewhere between 2.30 at night and 4.30 in the morning. And we talked about that big funnel. Having that funnel in the upstream area and the rehearsals and the plans for movement. And think about the barges and landing craft have to be put into position and concealed. And think of the logistical challenge to keep those landing craft and barges in the right order. They are hidden in little rivers and rivulets and bayous and tributaries. They're up creeks. They are perfectly camouflaged. They have to be put across in order. And we're still at the point where there are clandestine movements across the river. But who's to say what's going to happen next week in all this crappy weather? And that crappy weather is going to present an opportunity for Ukraine because Russia is not going to be moving anything off the roads after a week of rain. They're going to be channelized. And look at all those little drone strike icons. This will be the first map tomorrow. Alan, and I think there'll probably be just as many drone strikes. So because of the weather, because of the terrain, the swampy land on the southern bank, the Oleshki uh, Sand Dunes National Park, uh, and also some pretty extensive forest here, will this become another area of operation where the Ukrainians and Russians are fighting on the roads, for the roads? I think that that will probably be the case there of everything I see in the Kherson axis map, 
I'm still looking south of Poima, where the M14 and the M17 come together. That is a really important junction, and Ukraine is going to want to take that. But before it, it should be taken. Go to the, go to the eastern end of the map and see where the M14 passes under Nova Harkova. Then it loops up across over the top of the Oleshki sands because nobody even wanted to build an interstate through that, those sand dunes. It was too difficult. They're going to want to cut the M14 somewhere to the west of Nova Harkova. And what they're working on right now, if you look south of Krinky, there's a town of Pishane, uh, Masa, and uh, right down along a north-south road. There are two of those roads that uh, in, travel in parallel up from the M14 towards Krinky. Those places too, that road I just described, is almost bumper to bumper now with Russian wreckage. So. This attritional fight along the river, um, when Ukraine busts its big city moves, they're going to want to cut the M14. Maybe that will be around Kozache Leary because cutting it anywhere between Nova Harkova and, uh, and Kozache Leary, those are functionally equivalent. And then being able to take the M14, M17 highway with the M17 leading, of course, to Crimea. But one of the, one of the magic ingredients that's got to happen is Ukraine has got to improve its air defense capabilities closer to the river. Nuno, uh, was talking this afternoon in his opinion, they need to move a Patriot battery into this area. That's a major commitment for Ukraine, especially when those Patriots are defending civilian populations. But the other thing they're going to have to do is they are going, the Ukrainians are going to have to make their electronic warfare and their electronic countermeasures, they have to be absolutely dominant here so that nothing that is Russian, that no Russian UAVs can get across the Dnipro. And that's a tall order right now. Uh, moving a Patriot system to this area of operation is an unbelievably tough decision to make. I think Ukraine has only three or four. I think they just got their fourth delivered from, from Germany, maybe a week or two ago. And obviously the Patriot systems have been primarily deployed to protect Ukrainian cities. That would be a, what a decision that is to have to make by Zelensky and Zeluzhny. I don't know that decision is going to happen because there are intermediate range systems like the Iris T. There are systems like the NASMS, which is the National Norwegian Standard uh, Advanced uh, Air Defense System. There are other mobile systems. There are also point defense, short range air defense systems that could be moved closer to the zero line. If there is going to be a bridgehead, it is going to have to be defended. And uh, you're right. You know what? That's a decision that is way above my pay grade. And uh, uh, what's unfortunate is that Ukraine has to pick and choose. It has to say, do we risk this? Are we going to let this piece of equipment do what it's supposed to when we've only got three of them? And 
That's on us, Alan. That's on us. Every deficiency in the Ukrainian military, frankly, is on us. And it's got to change. I, I happen to think at this moment, in the 604th day of war, it can't remain on us uh, for much longer. And now is the moment to massively, and I do mean massively, supply Ukraine with everything it needs. We have some hands here, Chuck, and I, of course, have a few more questions. I know our co-host Michael has questions too. Welcome, Michael. We're going to get to all of the questions tonight. We always find a way to do that. We're going to begin with ATV. Thank you, Kindly Island. Thank you, Chuck. I've watched my fair share of HUD drone videos, as I'm sure everyone else has on this space. And I guess the comment I have is it hurts me a little bit to see them tearing apart DPICMs to get at the munitions, particularly as the munitions that they could really be using would be something that airbursts. And I, I don't know how hard it is to get a anti-tank mine or a similar munition to airbursts. Do you have a sense of that, Chuck? Thank you. Yeah, there are a number of, of droppable air deployable and artillery munitions that, uh, that can burst over the target and deploy mines. It, and it, it's disheartening that I keep getting up here and saying this. We've got tons of those things. They're sitting out in warehouses in Kentucky and Arizona and, uh, th th these munitions are desperately needed by Ukraine. The short answer is yes, absolutely. There are, there are, uh, air deployable mines and, uh, you know, what Ukraine, what Ukraine needs here, it needs to establish the preconditions for maneuver warfare, crossing a river. And it's not an easy thing to do. Not every NATO country is capable of doing it. In fact, there's only a few that are really capable of, of crossing a river. And one of the barriers to entry, in fact, the principal barrier of entry is having the equipment to establish the preconditions, the electronics warfare, artillery dominance, counter battery radar, air superiority. And in lieu of that drone superiority. So lots of moving parts here. Uh, on to Bruce, to Beef Eater. To... Hey guys, when we're talking about this, when that whole issue came up where Zaluzny used the S word and said stalemate, and then Zelensky kind of pushed back on it, that, that there was one quote that Zelensky gave that, that I thought was interesting. He said, we're coming up with a different, we're changing strategy. Our military are coming up with different plans, different operations in order to move faster and to strike the Russian Federation unexpectedly. English isn't his first language. I, I don't know if he meant to say Russian Federation as if, as in attacking the country of Russia itself, or if he was referring more to Russian occupation forces. But it seems to me like that, that not much is going on at Verbove and Robotine right now. And I, I think it goes back to what you're saying about Ukraine and partly because of the West supply being forced to make really tough decisions. And, and I, I feel like they've been trying to fend off what the Russians are doing at Avdivka, but, but maybe, but maybe they decided that they were running their heads up against a brick wall and, and maybe they feel like this is a more lucrative area for them to maybe make some things happen 
the other thing that I, I would say is when you look at your map just to the east of Nova Kakovka, just off your map, there's another road that hits that M14 highway coming up from the western side of, and man, if they could get that intersection, they would really be doing something. Because there's the one intersection where the M17 and the M14 converge, that Ukraine is already there. But there, there's two different roads that sort of, one road splits off from the M17 and hits just east of Nova Kakova. And then there, there's another one that hits that maybe a kilometer further east than that. That's it. Yeah, those, those are all desirable objectives. I always hate to hear General Zeluzhny or even President Zelensky acknowledging sort of impatience to, to make these, make leaps and bounds in terms of territorial gains. Because in my estimation, the most, this has been the most important summer of the war. Let's put aside who gained what territory for a moment. Over this summer, Russia has demonstrated that it can no longer put together offensive operations, even in places where it has incredible numerical superiority, Kupiansk, Kremena, their attacks aren't sticking. We all know that the, the you know, Russian commanders, they, they don't give a damn if they lose a thousand soldiers in an afternoon. It, it never enters their mind. Soldiers are consumable. They're losing materiel. They're using, they're losing vehicles. They're losing equipment. They're losing artillery. And although the Russian commanders may not give a damn how many soldiers they lose every day, their army gives a damn, right? And we see as part and parcel of this decreasing combat effectiveness, Russian soldiers are not committed to these attacks. We see them every day. We see columns of Russian uh, troops approaching in column, which means bumper to bumper, perpendicular to the zero line, getting hammered by artillery. Russian forces then dismount where they get smothered by cluster bombs. That happens three or four times a day in every battle space. You can't win the war that way. You can't keep fighting a war with tactics like that, you, you just can't. And I see an opportunity coming now that the weather is getting miserable and that Russia is going to have to supply its frontline forces with even more food, fuel, equipment, clothing, etc. They're going to have to supply more. And we know from Russian soldiers themselves that they're already not getting fed. They don't have adequate clothing. They're not being rotated off the zero line. And that's one thing in summer, right? You spend three, three months in your hole swatting mosquitoes. That's great. When this weather goes to hell, when it's 10 degrees below zero Fahrenheit and it's sleeting and snowing, you'll be dead in three days if you don't get rotated off the line. So I almost see this summer it's pushing for an offensive this winter, but we'll have to see. This is, it's an operational hypothesis for me, but were I a Russian, I'd be preparing for a Ukrainian offensive in the winter when the ground is hard.
On to Beefeater, Mark, and G-Man, please. Beefeater. Good evening, Chuck. Hi, Alan. Can you hear me? Yes, Beefeater. Good good to hear you. I've been retweeting you all day, brother. Thanks, Chuck. I appreciate that. Chuck, uh, let me just paint a picture for you. Something maybe foot. I can't confirm anything, but you can put the pieces together yourself. First thing is uh, a bit of context. Earlier this evening, someone from the Israeli government was absolutely tearing into a Russian host on RT, saying Russia is going to pay for this in no uncertain terms. The video was deleted pretty quickly. Now, the spicy bit is defensenews.com broke a story a few hours ago to 8.30 p.m. I'll read you some of it. The Israeli Defense Ministry will supply air defense systems to an unnamed country as part of a $1.2 billion deal. When asked by Defense News, both the ministry and Israeli aerospace industries declined to identify the type of system and the customer involved in the sale. The company, however, noted it is an air defense system with advanced technological capabilities, which has proven operational ability. They're talking about it may be, it may be the Barak MR variant, which has a range of 35 kilometers and the Barak ER, which is a range of up to 150 kilometers. And the Barak missiles are designed to intercept aircraft, medium range ballistic missiles and cruise missiles. Now I'm not saying anything, I'm just, that's, I'm just putting it out there. Two pieces of stories that came out on the back of each other. I'll leave it at that. Thanks. That's good news. I did previously listen to an Israeli parliamentarian who laid out the same sort of rage and vitriol, and rightly so, at at Russia. Two other systems come to mind as well. Of course, the Iron Dome itself and uh, the Arrow system, which uh, I understand got its first intercept yesterday in Gaza. So Yeah, that's correct. They've got the Arrow 2, the Arrow 3. They've got the sky capture and they've got the Eagle Eye 3. Those are some of the, the newest piece of kits, newest pieces of kits may be in the offering. Yeah. And there, there has existed a much uh, more cozy and collegial relationship between Israel and Russia than, than most of us in the West uh, could credit or appreciate. And some of that scientific and technological cooperation involved weapon systems. So there may be more disappointment and rage and disaffection at Russia from Israel than we realize. So I don't know. I, I was working on an article with a friend. I pointed out in, that in my estimation that Russian planning uh, helped make this 7 October attack a success because something changed. Suddenly Hamas, a notoriously leaky organization, suddenly their OPSEC science and practice went off the charts. Somehow they were able to coordinate and plan and execute an attack that was orders of done anything they previously attempted or accomplished. And uh, for me, beef that it, it points to the Kremlin. And I don't know if you share that. Uh, unfortunately I, I can't back that up. Yeah, I, I do share it with you. And again, I, we, I can't back up either. It's, it's a hunch and, uh, and I do trust my hunches, but 
I also want to temper my expectations. I don't want to be disappointed because the river runs very deep. Netanyahu has had a very long and deep relationship and affection with, with Putin. And I think decoupling from that relationship is going to take, it's going to take some doing. We may be seeing the start of it at the moment. Anyway, listen, I'm not going to hijack conversations. Over to you. Thank you very much. Nice chat to you again. Good night, Alan. Good night. Check. Beefeater, you're always welcome here. And uh, circle back if you can't go to sleep. Because <laughs> we love to talk to you and we love to hear what you bring to the table. Yeah, thank you, Beefeater. And fascinating news that does help us develop some hunches. Absolutely. Thank you. On to Mark and G-Man. Mark. Thanks, Alex. Chuck, the thing I like about the curse on um, offensive by Ukrainians is the fact that it looks to me as if the Russian supply lines are long and drawn out. And I have this vision. I hope that they're getting hammered at the back, they're getting hammered in the middle, they're getting hammered right at the front. So at the end of the day, we'll have a few Russians hauling a few measly weapons, really badly supplied, and really hoping they're, they're not enjoying themselves at all. But uh, my question actually, Chuck, is you mentioned about the Ukrainians potentially bringing forward the risk of them bringing forward air defense. Now, Kherson has been, um, that has been really badly hit, hasn't it, by Russia since you recaptured it. Is there any possibility of, I, I haven't heard what defense they have in that area, funny enough, but is there any possibility that they could augment their air defense to protect Kherson and at the same time protect the crossing across the, the river? Thank you. Well, that's a good question. I um, I don't want to shock you with uh, what seems to be the cynicism and, and cold blood of my uh, answer, but it might come down to what is there left to protect in Kherson. The local military might find it more sound tactically to prioritize the defense uh, of the river crossing points. And I don't say that with the cold-bloodedness that it sounds, because today a Russian artillery strike uh, killed a 92-year-old civilian. Every day, Kherson gets hit, and sometimes it gets hit all day long. If there is anything good about this Russian barbarity, it's that these artillery rounds get expended on terror targets, and they're not hitting the Ukrainian landing craft and barges and patrol vessels and inflatable craft and the hundreds and hundreds of them that are in the Kherson area. They are hidden in these creeks, bayous, tributaries, lakes. They are dispersed and Russia can't get at them. And of course, they'll get at them if they can find them. But there's also one thing that's, that, that might be more important, actually, at this time in the war, might be more important than an actual river crossing, and that is convincing the Russians that the potential for a large-scale river crossing that gets armor and maneuver elements across the river, it compels the Russians to keep their forces in Kherson Oblast, where they are essentially chained to a fire hydrant, right? Kherson Oblast is where Russian forces can do the least damage against the Ukrainian people. So fixing them here is at least half of the desirability of all of these moves. I don't think that's the sole purpose. 
Ukraine has meticulously planned and prepared and turned, like I said, a series of beach landing sites. And look, beach landing sites is a couple of seals in the bushes doing some signaling magic, which I won't discuss, to bring in other floating elements and get people across the river, back out, extract agents, put agents in, lay ambushes, all of those things. But those are just little points. But Ukraine has turned those beach landing sites into extending and consolidating a zone of control, where at the very least, it's a denied area for the Russians. And one tactical thing that they have done, which is a precondition, the road that goes from Krinky to Kozachi Larry, and I believe that's the Valaiva, God, I can't pronounce it, Michina Road, that takes that big arc and goes down to Poima. That is a denied area for Russians. That road is interdicted from Krinky all the way to, to Poima. That is circuitous as it is, as it is. That's one of the major east-west ground lines of communication available to Russia, and Ukraine holds it. So if we're ticking off those boxes, what's going to be necessary before a river crossing? That's an important one. Mark, with a follow-up, please. Just a very quick one. Yeah, Chuck, I thanks for your comments. And I do realize that there is a, a need for the Ukrainians to make some really hard and tough decisions. I just, I guess I just hope that this crossing just developed into something bigger and they can push the Russians back and actually basically maybe that will take the pressure off uh, Kherson. I hope so anyway. Thank you. I agree with you completely, but this is a city that's had its heart torn out, right? How many times have they hit the maternity hospital? Four or five times. Almost every hospital and medical clinic in Kherson has been deliberately targeted by these clowns. And uh, they're going to be pushed back, right? But there's a battle to be fought uh, where my map ends and south. And we've talked about Ukraine being able to extend the range of its first-person drones, and they are operating at ranges in a combat radius of 15 miles. And that's important to push these Russian artillery systems back. And we know... It's part of the diminishing combat effectiveness of the Russian army. We know they're having trouble with forward observers. We know they're having trouble registering their artillery on legitimate Ukrainian military targets. And that's part of that breakdown. That's part of that breakdown. And to make that Russian artillery system break down more, Ukraine needs to bring up Another valuable asset, they need to bring up the counter-battery radars to allow them to snuff out Russian artillery before it can do damage to the river crossing. And of course, it's also desirable to protect Kherson as much as is militarily expedient, I'm afraid to tell you. Uh, thank you, Mark. Uh, on to G-Man, to Ukraine war update, and Jeff. G-Man, please. Yeah, if I sooner, I'll... Uh, morning, Chuck. How are you? I'm good, brother. Good to hear you. That's great. Question, a couple of things here, actually. One, just look at your map. Cool. Uh, I remember ha I had a question a while back, sent to me when I, when I was up, talking to you by our friend David Brickfield. Yes. He had reminded me that Ukraine had taken that settlement 
back in the time, back out um, when they captured that Russian officer and all that there, did they just yield that back to the Russians or did they get, did the Russian push them back out of it? And then the other question is, in, in terms of crossings and they're using barges and what have you, is there, would there be any virtue in having amphibious vehicles? I'm thinking of the Marines, the Amtraks that the US Marines used to use and which the Argentines used to in their invasion of the Falklands. Now, the Royal Marines knocked a couple of one, at least, or two of those out. But even in a river crossing, that might be useful, I would have thought. And then the last thing was there's reports from the Russian mill bloggers of the Ukrainian using helicopters to attack near. So that's enough for now, those three things. Okay. Yeah, good points. There, uh, there are some legacy Russian systems, infantry fighting vehicles with amphibious boarding capability that Ukraine has. Those Amtraks that the U.S. Marines used to use, I, that would be the last thing, even though they would be useful in this situation. They're, they really weren't very capable uh, vehicles. They didn't have much crew protection. Uh, they could reliably swim, and you could launch them from an amphibious ship underway. And that was the good part. But uh, they wouldn't even stand up to 50 caliber uh, machine gun fire. And that was the bad part, which is why the U.S. Marines got rid of them. I would say, uh, I don't think I'm going too far off the reservation, that Ukraine is using what amphibious vehicles it has to hand. And on the dark and stormy nights, they are crossing on their own accord. The problem with almost all the world's amphibious infantry fighting vehicles is, again, they're not really extraordinarily capable. You, you trade off so much by having this buoyant vehicle and uh, you've got to make a lot of sacrifices with it. You're not going to give it the really good optical and targeting systems. You're, there's only a degree to how far it can be up armored, et cetera. So I think the really important stuff is going to be going over by whatever landing craft they have to hand. And I haven't seen a lot of ramped front ramp land landing craft, what in the Navy we used to call Mike boats, but I'm sure they are there. Mike boats are not very expensive. They are durable. They are very hard to sink. They're not very fast, but they definitely do the job. And oddly enough, they're not much changed from saving Private Ryan. Regarding Kozachi Larry, the initial Ukrainian success, actually, they were able to cross the uh, Konka River. They were in the village of Kozachi Larry. I think they found it, the Ukrainian forces found it expedient to withdraw from the village. I don't think at the time of the initial raid, that they had the ability to logistically support a multi-company tactical element holding on to Kozachi Leary. And when you're making those calculations, right, it probably was determined that it, it isn't necessary to hold on to Kozachi Leary when we can retreat across the, the Konka River, hang out in the swamps, and we can still cut the road. So you didn't have to hold on to Kozachi Larry and explain the, the blood and treasure to hold on of it when 
you had the 99% solution and you could retreat across the river. So I think that's what happened in Kozachi Leary. We may also see that when this crossing comes, I'd be militating for this. There's no reason to get into Kozachi Leary and fight the Russians in a semi-urban space. Cross where they're not and cut it off. Cut Kozachi Leary off. Maneuver around it and let the Russian elements there die on the vine. And I think that's what's probably going to happen with Kozachi Leary, but we'll see. Thanks, G-Man. To, or G-Man, you have a quick follow-up here. Yes. And thanks for coming back to me. The last thing just occurred to me, you mentioned, I think it was actually earlier on this evening when you were on it, that the area around, I think that's the name, there's a lot of forest. And it just made me think of, again, the Falklands War, the British had a lot of special forces in the Falklands, possibly from before the Argentine invasion, but certainly not long after. And some of the islanders were aware of this. Some of them weren't, but, and they were hiding out in the Falklands, which was not a very forested region, they're new chase, but a, a very boggy region, but they still managed to hide out for the 10 weeks that the Argentines had the island. And there was a lot of incidents, let's say, in Stanley. But anyway, I'm thinking, I'm thinking you, you'd stay behind troops, uh, behind the lines, the, the ghosts that come out at night and do nasty things to unsuspecting Russian troops. I suspect we're going to see that, or we already are seeing that, in those areas of that, that region that are forested. Your thoughts? No, no doubt about it. We see on the maps this sort of night, nice lines where the red zones are and white where the, where the Ukrainians have taken back their country. Look everywhere on this map and look for the green. Look for the forested areas. There are Ukrainian special operations forces and they have been across the river for months and they are hiding in all kinds of places. North of the M14, they're even across the, the M14. They hold sway over more terrain than this map can, can depict. And always bear in mind, I have to put a red line somewhere, but the zero line is where you are walking towards the enemy and a bullet snaps over your head. That's the zero line. And that changes hour by hour. You can walk a little farther south in the rain and the fog than you can on a bright, clear day. And what Ukrainian civilians still exist in this area, there's not a lot of them, but they are still there. Russia did force evacuations out of here, but it's a semi-permissive environment for a Ukrainian special operations guy. Chances are pretty good if you run into a Ukrainian citizen they're probably going to be on your side. So there's a visible part of this struggle and there's an invisible part of it. And part of that invisible struggle is electronic. And the other part of that invisible struggle is kinetic. It's knife in the teeth. It's old fashioned special warfare and direct action missions in deep reconnaissance in, in covert patrolling and also unconventional warfare, where these special operations forces, they are linking up with local partisans, they are receiving intelligence, and uh, this 
There, there's another way also that I'd like to get out. Just one, one more thing to say about Kherson. We're talking about the possibility of a large-scale Ukrainian crossing here. Here's something, and, and people say, How, I, I don't like the way the summer offensive went. Here's one of the things the summer offensive did. We are never going to be talking about a Russian crossing of the Dnipro. That's never going to happen. Ten months ago, it was probably still possible. You turn this map upside down, you play the Russian cards, and if you could figure a way to get across this river, it would be a wipeout. So although Ukraine has not established all the preconditions for its river crossing, it has absolutely frustrated any attempt that, that Russia could possibly make to cross the, the Dnipro, and that's important too. Thanks, Chuck. On to Jeff and then Ukraine war update. And then we really need to get Michael into this conversation too. So Jeff and then Ukraine war update. Hi, Chuck. Good to see you again. I'm going to take us back to Kazaki Lahari and some thoughts that I had. It seems to me that, that we talked, I think one of the previous times I was on, we talked about essentially the possibility of a window in Russian artillery coverage caused by they're not being able to put stuff into the Oleski's hands. And I'm also thinking that we've got two bookends on either side of the Oleski's hands right now, where you've already talked about cutting the M14, probably, and then potentially cutting the M14 again at the M14 and 17 junction. It seems to me that the Ukraine is able to accomplish that. And they effectively have, I'm sure, They've got interdiction over those routes now. That basically puts any Russian defensive forces in between those two points on the M14 in the sack. I agree. I, you nailed it. Absolutely. I agree with you. I'd like to, where you can, because I'm, once again, I'm, I'm always conscious of OPSEC. Where you can, I'd like you to comment some more on what potentially that means in terms of Ukraine's ability to establish a solid presence across the river. We look at the map and we look at the Oleski Sands National Park. It's this big egg-shaped mass. It's maybe seven or eight kilometers across and maybe 15, 13, 15 miles north to south. And that might as well be a lake, right? Russia can't go from Nova Malachka straight across there. It's sandy, it's wide open, and whoever tries to cross there is going to burn and die there. That amplifies one of the one of the cards that Ukraine has been able to play through the entire war, and that's interior lines of communication. It's not so straightforward to look at this map and see that, but we're looking at the zone of Ukrainian control from Krinky, which is, of course, west of Nova Harkova, extends along the, the riverbank, the south bank, all the way to Kherson and a little farther south. So you've got that, let's call it rectilinear stretch of Ukrainian control. In order to oppose that or try to break it up, Russia has got, it isn't the worst possible situation for their ground lines of communication and supply, but it's pretty bad because they can't get across the Oleski sands. 
that only gives them the M14. And the M17 doesn't parallel the M14. It, it, it doesn't depart perpendicularly to the south, but essentially it does. So when these places like Pishkenvinka, Kozachi-Leri, when Russia is trying to move reinforcements into those areas, you can see they've got just a handful of roads to do it in. Here's another key thing, at least in my mind. You look at the forested areas. So there are trees and bands of forests skirting the Oleshki sands, going all around it. Then you go north to Kozachi-Leri, and there at about one o'clock, between Kozachi-Leri and Krinki, there's a big band of forest heading down to the M14 highway. Here's what this war has shown us about forest fighting. Ukraine dominates. They dominate because their organic night vision and thermal capabilities are better than the Russians. But the other reason they dominate in forest fighting is you can pour, and you know this, you pour a division of troops into a forest. It's reduced to a rifle squad fight, right? That's the only tactical element that you can keep together and that can still keep its eyes on its opponents. Here's one more good thing about that. You get into the forests, heavy forests, and Russia loses its dominance in close air support and aviation strike missions. It is going to have a lot harder time determining friend from foe. Ukrainians will. Okay. The only thing mitigating that is zero Fs are given by the Russians about friendly fire. They could care less. But I think we're going to see maneuver elements coming between Krinky and Kozachi Larry. They're going to take advantage of that forested area. And you're right. They have already interdicted some of these roads. They're coming over under Ukrainian uh, drone controlled artillery and also first person drones. So in my book, you nailed it. Jeff, with a follow up, then Ukraine war update. Just very quickly, if Ukraine can get past the M14, M17 junction and down to the forest north of Radensk and uh, cut the Ulyahaya uh, road, and then if they can get into forest and yeah, looking at that um, dogleg that is just east of Kazakhilohari on the M14, then get into the forest and interdict to cut the road there. Basically, any Russian defense along the depot between those two locations is pretty much untenable. I absolutely agree with you. I put my finger on Radensk though, and I tell myself, I don't want to get in a door-to-door -door fight in Radensk. So I do want to grab that junction, but I want to bypass that town as much as possible. And if the Probably. Russians have, yeah, they have Radensk, if they have any sense at all, they're fortifying that place to the nines, but I, I'd bypass it if I were a Ukrainian. Yeah, and and they don't have to take it in order to be able to cut off all that area. They just simply, they get into the woods along that stretch. I can see the, the wooded area on the west side of the Alenshki Sands. If they can get into that, if they can get their forces into that, it's done. As far as anything from pretty much from the Anikovsky Bridge all the way to Kernke. Yeah, and you know what? We're, 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 talking about, we're talking about things that are eminently doable. We really are. And the more of these topological complications, logistical complications, failure to get artillery on target, the more of these 
problems we talk about with for Russia, the harder it's going to make them to prevent Ukraine from succeeding here. And the the other good thing is, look, the 60% solution is to just keep poking Russia here and to force them to keep a large portion of their army, like I said, chained to the fire hydrant, to keep them west of Melitopol, north of Kremena, and put them in a box of their own making. Thank you, Jeff. And Ukraine war update, please. Hey, thanks, Alan. Thanks, Michael, for hosting this space. Chuck, appreciate your expert assessment as always. So there's a couple of days ago, Ukraine <clears throat> showed a video where they ended up hunting down one of the Russian rear vehicles in Kherson region. It was a layer two SIGINT vehicle. They used Tiger chassis and which is light armor, basically version of a Humvee in Russia, pretty crappy engine, but it has a lot of antennas. In fact, it, it has so much electronics packed into it that it's only two man crew that operates this vehicle. And Ukrainians showed the video of them destroying this thing using a drone out of all the irony, right? Because this vehicle is supposed to be very sophisticated, produced in 2017 timeframe. There's not a lot of them. But what happened was, to the points that Chu Chang mentioned earlier, right? The importance of electronic, electromagnetic problem warfare and the use of drones and reconnaissance elements and all these assets of how they're being used. Their vehicle was moving there in the broad daylight on a company speeding through a road. So constructed with the terrain features without any types of support, potentially forward of the lines. Some were trying to maybe get to a position, but anyway, there was a lot of things wrong with it, uh, with, from, with, with that picture specifically. My question is that you mentioned in order to hunt down some of these high value targets, whether it's certain assets like the SIGIN vehicle, the Russians have that's pretty rare or the commanders, like that major that, that you discussed earlier, right? The, possibly how complex the type of operation was in order to get them captured uh, and, and other things, right? It's, it's it, a lot of work to synchronize a lot of various assets that are very decentralized throughout the battlefield. And those assets that don't necessarily have the, the same type of command and control structure that regular formation would have. So that definitely speaks the volume on, volume on U- Ukrainian ability to act on some of these high value targets that probably have a very short window to be to be captured or destroyed. Can you shed any light of how that type of command and control could possibly be structured? Because when we're talking about military, we can understand the squad platoon company, battalion level, hierarchy, that kind of stuff, right? With some of the special operations and operators, okay, it's a small unit tactic, that kind of stuff. But when we start looking into civilian population, when there's, um, collaborators and there are people who continue to be loyal to Ukrainians, right? The, the type of messaging they have to do, all that stuff. There's got to be some kind of insane fusing cell that, that puts all this stuff together, packages that somehow, and all of that needs to be done in a very decentralized manner, I would imagine, because they still have to avoid Russia's ability to target some something like that. So, I don't know. To me, it just speaks so much complexity. I cannot even understand or try to even comprehend how that could possibly be fused together. Thanks. Yeah, it's that flexibility. There are definitely Ukrainian operational and fusion center. And about 10 years ago, that's that about the time of 9-11, actually, that term got kicked around. It's a tactical operations center that has, in the best case situation, all the intelligence feeds come into that center. 
and decisions can be rapidly made about force deployment, engagement of targets, etc. I think what we have happening here and other places on the Ukrainian side, I think we've got a much more decentralized kill chain, right? The kill chain is when the target is observed, the target is identified, it's prioritized, and, and kinetic forces brought to bear on it. So that whole process is the kill chain, right? So from the time I see a lucrative target, identify it, call up the nearest uh, kinetic asset and lay it on the target, right? You can have a system, as the Russians do, that's extremely top-down, micromanagerial. You give me the information, I'll make all the effing decisions, and you do what I tell you to do when I tell you to do it. And that is a great way to miss targets like that uh, layer two, right? So we've seen enough of Ukrainian drone successes. So the situation, and I'm not talking out of school, it, that happens something like this. You've got a certain patch of terrain and you have at altitude, higher endurance, longer range, and they have got sensor packages primarily in daylight. This is going to be optical high definition video augmented by IR thermal cameras and they locate, they locate targets. That information, instead of going all the way up to battalion, it's very likely going to a company level. I don't even want to say headquarters, a forward deployed command element and operating under that, that more capable reconnaissance, uh, platform you've got in the case here of South of the, you've got 20 first person drones and they're prowling around and they're just looking for a target. That's the way by shortening that kill chain and delegating operational authority down the chain of command. This is something that, that, that the Ukrainian armed forces, when operation unifier first happened, that was the Canadian military docking with the Ukrainian military and divorcing them from their post Soviet, again, top down micromanagerial command inclinations and teaching them delegate tactical authority down, down the chain, brief your subordinates on commander's intent, be flexible, be opportunistic. You've got to be able to move fast. And there's no place that we see that better illustrated than here. The, the manner I just talked about with these sort of layered capabilities in UAVs, that's just one of half a dozen ways to make a shortened kill chain work, but there is no question about it. Ukraine is the opportunistic force. They are the aggressive force and in, in the long and even short and intermediate terms, this is why they're going to win. That Russian system is an, it is an artifact that the West abandoned at world war one, midway through world war one the Western and allied powers, they quit doing business like that. You're a battalion commander. You tell your company commanders what commander's intent is. They go out and do it. And that's what's working. Thanks, Chuck. And Michael, I apologize for being so tardy in welcoming you as co-host. 
about I bet you have some questions here in on the Harrison map. No, I do. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Chuck, for being here with us. Uh, it's been a great evening, but a great discussion. And Kershaw done a really good job covering that over. And I, I wanted to ask you, Chuck, about this area and uh, the opportunity. You call out in your map, and I know a couple other folks before me have noted this, but that area around Poima and, and the cutting off the M14 N17 there, um, there's a couple, a lot of different targets of opportunity they possibly have here. And uh, with the weather changing, do you see, and again, without without necessarily giving away the game from an OPSEC perspective, but the Oleski Sands, do you see them going more towards the east of the Sands or do you see them more going towards Nova Malisha? Which of those areas do you see if you, you had to make a choice? If you were to advise Zaluzhny, what would you tell them to do? I think I would want to push south from Kozachi Liri and cut the M14 highway as it circumscribes the northern end of the Oleski Sands. Because if we consider the Oleski Sands a lake, by, by cutting the M14 highway south of Kozachi Liri, you can see the Russians are now there in two fights. And if they want to protect the M17, there's only one ground line of communication that they can use. Cutting, cutting the M14 south of Kozachi Liri, all the Russian forces to the west of that point now are only going to be able to be supplied. What is that? The Lutnanaya road. That's it. So I'm not saying that is the number one priority. I, I don't think that's the next, I don't think necessarily that is the next Ukrainian tactical move. I don't think it's their only tactical move. They are complicating Russia's ulcer count every day by succeeding in Krinky, by engaging, engaging there and picking off Russians that are channelized, right? So if you're a Russian soldier and you want to stop what's going on in Krinky, there's only two roads. There's the, the Pichane road and there's another one. It doesn't show on this particular version of the topo map. But there's another one, but that's it. And as I said, one of those roads is bumper to bumper with Russian wrecks right now. Any move that, that splits your enemy apart, anytime you can find a, a terrain feature that separates your enemy, whether he's deployed his forces and they're separated by a river, by a mountain, by a valley, or in this case, the Oleski Sands Natural Park, that, that is a move that suggests itself to me immediately, but we'll see. It's not the only move that uh, Ukraine could make. That's great. That, that's fascinating. It's good to have options for sure there. Uh, my other question for you is the village of Olechki and that, that area just on the other side of the Dnipro, you know, and you, you noted that you had another uh, elderly person that was uh, killed by, by the Russians and the, their shelling has just been you know, absolutely indiscriminate. There was an excerpt from the excellent book that uh, General Petraeus and Andrew Roberts had where they were talking about the shelling. They described the, uh, it, it's a truly depraved psychology, some of the shelling. And I'm wondering how far, would, if they were able to take Alechki in that area, would that uh, mitigate some of the shelling? Like how far back would they need to go to, to stop some of those guns 
coming down in those civilian areas um, on the other, on the side that they've held for the year. Boy, there, there's a couple of solutions there. I, ideally, your artillery is miles away. Uh, and ideally, or in most cases, your artillery batteries do not have direct line of sight to their targets. Their fire has to be adjusted by forward observers in the old school, right? Two guys with a map, a radio, and binoculars. And more and more now, it's adjusted by UAVs who will find, identify, locate, and communicate location data to an adjacent artillery battery, which will then take that, take that position under fire. But Ukraine is, it's not going to come up to artillery parity with Russia. It may never come up to artillery parity. The West might not have enough guns to match Russian, Russia gun for gun. And Ukraine has never come anywhere close to matching Russian volume of fire. You don't fight this with boxing. You fight it with a keto and Ukraine is good at doing this. So if you break down Russia's ability to call in accurate fire, then it almost doesn't matter that they've got a tremendous tube advantage over you. If they can't see what they're shooting at and they can't get rounds on target, you, you've done a lot to protecting yourself. This comes to be part of that invisible struggle, creating a dominant electronic warfare environment favors Ukraine, makes the Russian UAVs fail, wander off target. And as much as possible, you have counter battery do dominance. So you can't match 100 shell fire missions all day with the Russians, but you can locate the Russian guns who are carrying out those 100 shell fire missions and snuff them out. So th that's the solution for Ukraine as I see it. Ukraine has got not enough, but they have Excalibur 155 millimeter shells and they go pretty much exactly where you want them to go. And I'm talking about, they can hit your front porch or your back porch. But again, they require electronic warfare. The electronic warfare situation has to be because the Russians do everything they can to jam GPS signals around their own, their own important assets. But that's what I think we're going to see. Every way that you, Ukraine can address these problems, they do it. And that's where they find the solutions. But again, they need more stuff. You just need more stuff. And they do need more stuff. No question about it. We lost Michael there for a moment, but we're going to move on to Matthew Light and then Incognito. Matthew, welcome. Hello. Thank you. I was just listening with interest to uh, the discussion about what Ukraine might encounter on the other side of, of the river. And one question that came to mind is at what point might they hit urban areas and how will that play out? I don't know that Ukraine has so far had to actually uh, reclaim uh, a, a fully occupied urban area. If I remember correctly, the main one that was under Russian occupation in Kherson was essentially abandoned by the Russians. Could, could we discuss that for a sec? Yeah, by all means, absolutely. Questions at your discretion. So Matthew, are you asking if you think that 
Russians will abandon some of these smaller urban areas on the South Bank, like Rodensky, etc.? No, sorry that I wasn't very clear. I wasn't, I didn't mean to ask that, but rather how that might play out for Ukraine and who would have the advantage. And I suppose what I could also have added was that I was just thinking about the current conflict in Gaza in which there is a lot of civilian casualties taking place in a dense urban environment. And I wonder whether we might see things like that. I, I think absolutely wherever possible, Ukraine is going to avo- avoid urban combat. The Russians, on the other hand, uh, they're getting orders from the Kremlin and they want to take cities. No matter what it takes, get in there and take a city. They've forgotten how to take a city. You don't take a city by starting in the suburbs and fighting doorknob to doorknob until you've cleared the enemy out of it. You can do that, but the expedience and the textbook and the rational and the most cost-effective way to take a city is to go around it and cut it off. And then at your leisure, you besiege it. And those tactics haven't changed since Julius Caesar. It goes on beyond that. They haven't changed since Troy. You surround a city, you invest it, and you cut it off. Heading south down the M-17 highway, the first city that Ukraine would come to is Veliki Kopane, and that is off the map on the bottom of, of the map that we have in front of us right now. I look around that and I see more than adequate terrain for Ukraine to simply bypass this place. I also expect Russia to do, and I shite talk the Russians all the time. I shouldn't do that. Never underestimate your enemy. Always think that he's smarter than you and he knows more than you do. But Russia has shown again and again that it does the most pound productive things imaginable. I would expect the Russians, if there is a Ukrainian breakthrough, if they do get to the M17, M14 junction, which I think is imminently possible. Russia will try to dig into these cities along the M17 and they will deploy troops here and they will wait impatiently and forlornly for Ukraine to enter the city and slug it out with them. Then when Ukraine bypasses these places, Russia will stay there. They'll stay there like they did in Liman until there's literally one road left out of town that is commanded, interdicted by Ukrainian forces. Only then will they try to withdraw and they'll lose everything. I may be shite talking these guys, but they earn it every day. They do these completely counterproductive things, which have led me, Nuno, John Spencer, quite a few other military analysts, maybe in hopes of redeeming some of these Russian officers. The only thing we can hope to explain that by is that these stupid orders come from the Kremlin. That like Adolf Hitler, it is that not one inch back mentality, which is again, how you lose a war, right? Maintaining a force in being, even if it's air quotes defeated, That is much more important than wiping it out. 
than leaving it to be surrounded and besieged and starved out in a city. It's always better to preserve your force. You've got this confluence of a megalomaniacal, militarily illiterate dictator and a Russian command structure that cares not one whit how many thousands of troops they kill. And that's a really bad combination. Yeah. And Chuck, Michael here, it's just like that quote I had from General Prokash's book, a, a truly depraved psychology. These are the same people that are booby trapping houses once the Ukrainians have to clear them. And then one reminder that I heard today was, was back from when you were serving during the Afghanistan war, where the Russians were distributing and, and putting out explosive toys for the Afghanistan, the Afghan children to pick up. So you're right. There's stupidity there. There's incompetence, but there's this depraved psychology, which I, I think is, it, it, it tears my heart out that they, that we're, we're seeing that in action as well. It, it's hard to grasp. It's, I think we talked the other night, we were talking about information warfare and the, the idea of black propaganda. That's where you accuse your enemy of booby trapping toys. That's one of those over the top statements. This is, uh, this is how evil they are, but it's really true. And it takes a long time for me to wrap my head around the illegality of it, the depravity of it and also the incredible waste of resources. That isn't the way you win the hearts and minds, right? You came here to denazify Ukraine by what? Being the most vicious army since the Waffen-SS? I know I'm preaching to the choir, but and that is another reason why. And there are going to be ups and downs in this war. There's going to be failures. There's going to be retreats, but Russia can't win this anymore. I am absolutely convinced of it. Their combat capabilities are, are decaying like a radioactive isotope, right? They have a half-life and every six months they decrease by 15%, 20%. We just had a video released by a unit, a Russian regiment and wait for it, all 80, 80 of the survivors were complaining that they were still on the front line and they only had one vehicle. Think about that. A regiment, right? That's multiple battalions, 80 people. They don't even have one company left. Zero Fs given by their leaders. Do not care. That's who we're fighting. Now, one thing that surprised me watching the Dnipro Chuck is that the Russians prefer by five or six to one, they prefer fire into Kherson city itself and uh, seemingly ignore, uh, the crossing points, ignore this expanding bridgehead. Uh, that simply doesn't make sense to me whatsoever. L let's uh, try to wrap up Kherson here, uh, with the next two hands, uh, incognito and then Mark, and then we'll move uh, all the way to Avdivka, but incognito. Hey, thank you, Alan. Uh, good evening, Chuck. I just had a really burning question for you on Russian replacement of materiel, but I have to, if you don't 
if you would indulge, if the space would indulge me, I, I just want to pipe in a little bit of embellishment on what was just said. The collective national deviancy necessary for Russians to booby trap toys and let's not forget to establish torture chambers for children is off the charts. It is a psychopath. It's got to be a psychopathic national culture. There is no other explanation. So with that in mind, let's move on. I wanted to mention to Godson much earlier before bullet points began that the best explanation for the Russian invasion isn't energy, but because Putin's uh, kleptocracy cannot endure a, a successful democratic, prosperous Ukraine on its borders. It, because the, the kleptocratic klep oligarchy will just collapse or will be overthrown by their own people. If they realize that, oh, the West isn't an enemy. It's actually the right way to, to run a civilized nation. But anyway, my burning question for Chuck is this. We've been understanding for months that there is a diminishing, rapidly diminishing quantity of Russian armored fighting vehicles, be they tanks and or seas, and even just military trucks. I'm curious about the delta between the loss rate and the replacement rate. And I'm also curious about what vehicles are being churned out to replace the, the lost Russian seas. I'm assuming that they're probably, the tanks are probably T-90s. If you can shed any light on that, uh, I think we would all be enlightened. Thank you very much. Great question. And I am, as we say at staff meetings, I'm imperfectly informed on the sort of replacement Delta. I can say this, it was yesterday or this morning, Ukraine topped 10,000 in the number of Russian armored vehicles destroyed. And that of course includes main battle tanks and infantry fighting vehicles. The T-90s and the T-72s are at the higher end of what Russia can put forward. Neither of those platforms is going to stand up to a modern Leopard or, or an Abrams. It is a big warning bell to me that Russia is actually going through the process of refurbishing T-62 tanks, 62 as in President Kennedy, 1962. If they had alternatives, they wouldn't be pressing those into service. An interesting thing that, that is happening is there are not a lot. Russia doesn't offer its main battle tanks. They're not in, generally, they're not in armor-on-armor armor fights. And tanks are used for killing other tanks and supporting infantry strike operations. Russia is also losing enough artillery that it is having to press these older tanks into service as self-propelled guns. And a little bit technical, but the cannon on a main battle tank, and I, sometimes it's rifled. And sometimes it's a smooth bore, but it is never a substitute for an artillery piece, for a howitzer. Tanks generally can't fire with that parabolic uh, flight path that, that is desirable for longer range artillery strikes. All of this is pushing Russia 
into sort of untrod territory tactically. They no longer have the vehicles necessary to conduct the kind of operations that were the meat and potatoes of the Soviet and later the Russian army. They just, they don't have it. We're transitioning here to Avdivka where we're going to go through the points of contact and man, it screams out to us. They have insufficient numbers of main battle tanks. The other thing about Russian infantry fighting vehicles, although they were the guys who invented it, right? They were the first guys to have a up armored, uh, vehicle that you could put most of a rifle squad on and you gave them a 30 millimeter cannon and later anti-tank guided missiles. And they were to ride this vehicle into combat and use that auto cannon on the enemies. But one thing Russia never did is they never got those infantry fighting vehicles. A 50 caliber machine gun will tear apart almost every single Russian infantry fighting vehicle. And the majority of them can be chewed to pieces by a 7.62 machine gun. That's the kind of machine gun that an infantryman would carry. Totally unsat. To compare what they're up against, you can shoot at a Bradley all day with a 20 millimeter cannon. And when the ramp goes down, the infantry's going to get out and be in one piece. So we're not there yet. There is a merge point where Russia is running out of appropriate equipment and they're already to the point where the equipment that they have now is proving more and more inadequate to their daily tasks. I hope someone comes up and has uh, some better information on how fast it is that they are that bringing these depot older vehicles back into service. We're already reaching way back into their depot storage. And we know that these depots, in, instead of having a colonel in charge of this or a major who walked around every day checking the pressure in the tires, uh, making sure the oil was topped off, we had guys selling the engines out of these vehicles because it was the exact same engine used by Russian farmers. These things are not in good shape. And when you're bringing forward these vehicles from the 1960s, from the 70s, from the 80s, their utility on a modern battlefield is really not up to snuff. But that was a very long answer to tell you. I don't know the answer, but I, I, I can comment on the results. Uh, but it sounded like you knew the answer, Chuck. You, because a lot of time in the staff room and meanwhile, I'm signaling somebody, get me the information. Let's go on to uh, you, Mark and Jeff and then to Abdivka. Mark, please. Yeah. Thanks. And I appreciate you want to go on to the next area. Chuck. So that area behind crossroads from, from Kherson, is it correct to say that the Russians don't have the same defensive lines that they built further east? And does that give an opportunity for Ukraine if they can get their heavy armor across the river. Thank you. Yeah, I, I have seen evidence of Russian defensive lines in this area, but every time I have seen them, they are those death trap defenses. Everyone I've seen has no overhead cover. Several of the ones I've seen are positioned forward 
of, of the vegetation line, badly emplaced. And I think on the whole, there are less defenses south of Kherson for a couple of reasons. Russia, of course, used to control Kherson and a big block of terrain on the North Bank. They got almost to Mikolaev, as we all know, and I think they, they felt that they were going to make their stand uh, on the North Bank, 15, 20, 30 kilometers north of Kherson. And I don't think they closed the gap on their defensive positions south of Kherson. That being said, I'm not sure what defensive positions they have now are going to do them a lot of good fighting positions. I think the best thing they have going for them, and this is a tragedy, is the fact that they've distributed tens of thousands of landmines around this area. But I see the terrain here will favor that big Ukrainian offensive move when it comes. And to me, the single most significant bit of terrain on the map is the Oleshki Sands National Park. And that fundamentally divides Russia's two spheres of, of, of two tactical spheres. It, it separates them from each other. And the way the roads are and the terrain is the most vulnerable position that I see, again, south of Kozachi-Liri, because Ukraine has the interior lines and uh, simply the way the roads are. I don't know that Russia can defend both sides of the national park, but again, we'll have to see and bear in mind that just keeping the Russians west of Melitopol, it accomplishes something. So I don't know when General Zeluzhny is going to decide that, uh, cracking this nut is going to be worth the blood and tears and losses that it's going to take. And he's really good about pushing the Russians to their breaking point before he assaults them. So we'll see. Jeff, please. Very quickly, two informational pieces. First is that I have, I recall reading, but I do not have the specific citation that the major reserve vehicle parks around Moscow are down to under 50% what they were at the start of the war. That's the first bit. So you take that as you may, if you consider the non-operational casualties that are probably directly tied to, as Chuck pointed out, somebody making a little money selling engines to tractor manufacturers. What's left there is probably not in very good shape. They've already taken the low-hanging fruit. The other thing is just simply as a exemplify this, we are seeing 50s showing up in the battlefield. Look that up. You'll it, it yeah. have exactly. No, I'm just making affirmative grunts. Please go ahead. You're right. <laughs> ATR-50s. Yeah, which are absolutely vulnerable to the 7.62 ammo that you were talking about. And 50 caliber, probably not as, not even as good as the World War II U.S. Amtraks, where, or half-tracks, where they say, it doesn't stop a ship. But in this case, a 50 cal EP is likely to go through both sides of the damn thing. But anyway, that's all. Yeah, you're right. I'll, I'll translate to uh, civilian for a second. So the 7.62, you don't want to get hit with one, but... A 50 caliber bullet is half an inch across. In this case, you're in a BTR 50 and believe me, it looks cool and sexy and it looks like you could take on the Terminator in this thing, but an infantryman's machine gun will go through one side of it 
and bang around on the inside of it until it hits something squishy. The next step up, which is another weapon deployed at the company level, is the 50 caliber machine gun, which, by the way, was is more than 100 years old. You heard that right, 100 years old. And that is so powerful, it'll go through both sides of that vehicle, probably without slowing down. The other thing that some of these Russian vehicles, uh, I don't know what they were thinking. The rear doors where you ingress and egress from the vehicle, those were actually fuel tanks. They're full of fuel. I've been inside these vehicles. If you have all your gear on and you are sitting there, it is like sitting in the bottom half of your closet with your shirts right above your head, except that's made of metal. These vehicles are very hard to get into and out of, which is why you will often see Russian soldiers sitting on top of them, where we see them turning around and looking right in the face of a first-person drone that's flying down their throat. So these are the material problems that, that Russia is facing. And they really are taking, uh, look, BTR-50, and I'm like Elvis, right? That's how old this stuff is. It's non-optimal equipment. And these are the vehicles in flames, coincidentally, in Avdivka, Alan. We're going to go to Avdivka. A dry fly heard me say Avdivka, which was his cue to come up, raise his hand, and probably ask a question about Kherson. Dry fly? <laughs> Hi, Drive. Uh, real quick, I just want a TLDR uh, from you with respect to Kirsten. I've listened to some of it. A lot of it sounds like the tactical here and there, which city you're going to push and how they're going to go across. But my question to you, just as a wrap up, is if they go across, where do they go from there? Because I don't know if it makes sense to actually go to Crimea. Everyone's thinking like, oh, this is the road to Crimea. I keep thinking that this is going to be the road. This is going to be the path in which they infiltrate in and go in behind places like Tokmak and right down that whole south road as opposed to going and cutting it off. You come from behind on those fortifications, they all of a sudden aren't really much of a fortification. And am I crazy or not? And I'll listen. You got to push my button here. No, you're not crazy at all. I look to the west of Harrison. I see a big sand spit sitting out there, the Kinburn Peninsula. I see a whole lot of coastline where the Russians aren't. And I will throw this little nugget out there for our Russian listening guests. Imagine you are a Russian colonel and the phone rings in your fancy purloined hotel. And you are told that the Ukrainians just cut the M-17 highway 40 kilometers south of Kherson. That's the kind of thing that Ukraine can do. Remember General Budinov and what I'm calling the Budinov boys. He's got 2,000 commandos trained to the highest level. That's the kind of job that, that they could do. And if you get a chance, I'm using the collective view, to look at the live view map, I am concentrated right now on uh, close in on Kremena, I've got some other map projections and I will put them up and we can get a better idea of what the ground lines of communication look like for Russians in this area. And again, it, it isn't that good. I expect 
And again, I don't think that a major Ukrainian river crossing is imminent because there are a lot of preconditions and other desirable diversions, distractions, complications that should, could, and should be rust upon the Russians. But there is a great opportunity for deep special operations forces to cut some highways and complicate Russia's position here. So dry fly, actually, I'm going to give you the gold star of the day award because brought up a very good point and we all shouldn't be staring right at the Dnipro, but looking at the bigger picture. Yeah. I got one other quick question when you go north, because I think the other place where infiltration is possible besides that Delta is in the north up by Kermina, all those forests and tree lines, it's not as much open as it is in the south. So if you were to do infiltrate units, small units, build up and then hit cities right and left all up and down the north on those roads, sitting down from Russia, again, you could just absolutely have panic city. The next thing you're at the doorsteps of, of Luhansk and, and wrapping around Donetsk. And so, and so I just, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that too, when you get to that. And I will listen. Thank you. Yeah. And you know, what will make more of those operations possible is when Russian air defenses are sig significantly depressed so that Helleborn operations are possible. There for a while, I used to think no helicopters, no SEAL team, right? If you want us into the target, we got to get there somewhere and walking is the least desirable solution. There, there are so many opportunities on the table for Ukraine, but I think another, something that we should, we should all keep in mind that 50% at least of operations along the Dnipro, 50% solution is just to fix Russian forces west of Melitopol. Keep those knuckleheads there in that triangle where they can do the least amount of harm to the Ukrainian army. Time might not be right for a crossing at all, but what's so important is you don't really have to sell the idea of a crossing to Russia because they cannot afford to turn their back on this. And if it reached that magic point where Russian defenders in Hersano Blast are reduced to skeleton forces because they're required other places on the battle space, Ukraine is going to bust a move. But in my estimation, they shouldn't bust that move until preconditions and they have the greatest potential for success by facing the least amount of Russians. Just my take on it. And you have to set those preconditions on both sides. Uh, so we're about to move to Abdivka, now the first map uh, in the nest. You would think that the Russians had, in fact, set the preconditions needed uh, for successful offensive attacks in Abdivka, uh, even though this is a, a battle that's been going on actually since 2014. Abdivka is a suburb of Donetsk City. But Abdivka is one of those places on the line of contact where Russia has significant superiority. It certainly has the superiority of air power, of artillery, and of infantry forces themselves. Yet, they fail every single day in launching assaults on Abdivka. They are only succeeding in ramping up casualties and equipment losses 
higher than those they experienced in Bakhmut. It is absolutely at that level. Again, if you don't have a map, folks, it's here's the way it looks. Of course, that red mitten reaching around to to clutch itself over Avdiv. Russia has not shown the ability to close the gap between the fingers and the thumb being being to the south. The gap between them is about 15 kilometers. So that's at about nine miles. Somebody started this war as a superpower. Somebody started this war with the kind of army designed, built, intended, equipped with the doctrine to take nine miles of terrain with a couple of interoperating battalion brigade task groups operating together in converging attacks. I just described something that Russia can no longer do. They can't do that stuff anymore. Ukraine has shown this fighting style that we've been calling the Ropadope. Uh, if you are looking at the map, 39 uh, November, you can see some points of contact go up above the word Avdivka. You can see two points of contact where Russian forces actually started to fight at the edge of the urban area of Avdivka. You can see the round trip symbols I've put on there. We're going to talk about other points of contact, but in those assaults on Avdivka proper, Ukraine allowed the Russian forces to cross four kilometers, maybe four and a half, five kilometers, get to their objective. Okay, so the Russians paid the toll going in. Probably a third of their forces were expended getting to the objective. They get to the objective with two-thirds of their force. They quickly exhaust their ready ammunition. There is this, although there were airstrikes here in Avdivka, Russia's ability to support these thrusts with artillery strikes, what would be then defensive fires to protect the Russian troops that actually made it to the objective, that isn't happening, right? Now, I don't know if they've run out of shells because they used them all on the old folks' home. I don't know if there wasn't defensive fires or offensive fires in support of this element because the kill chain broke down. They don't have forward observers. They couldn't get guns on target, or if they got guns on target, they couldn't get shells on target. But as we've described a hundred times before, these Russian forces lost another third at the objective when they then were forced to break contact where the final third was extinguished trying to get back to the port of departure. You can see to the south of there, just over the word Avdivka, two attacks. Those two battle icons indicate to me the same thing. The Russians lost a third on the way in. They got to the edge of the streets. They could not hold on to it. Then we see that battle icon to the east. That tells me that the retreating Russian force was then hit again by the Ukrainians. And I didn't even know whether or not to put that little red arrow going back to the H-20 highway because I think that attack was likely completely ground up. So south of Mdiv, southwest, Pervomayaski, Russian assault was stopped 
before it could even approach. Several times the Russians have actually got there and stood on the streets, but were pushed back. What was interesting about this attack was it failed at the point of departure. What makes an attack fail at the point of departure? Your, your tired soldiers don't want to do it anymore. They decide that they're not going to die today. That's how one of those falters. North of Pervomayarsky, Severne and Toniki. The area between Pervomayarsky and Toniki is absolutely littered with burned out Russian armor. They have tried to take Toniki at least 10 times in the last 14 days. Every single one of those attacks comes to grief like this in column, bumper to bumper in a linear formation. Ukraine takes that formation under fire. It destroys the leading vehicles. It destroys the rear vehicles. Russian soldiers then dismount. They should have been operating dismounted in support of these armored vehicles anyway, but they dismount just in time to be smothered by cluster bombs. It isn't working. It's not working. Okay. One, one point of hope perhaps for Russia, Septove, which is north of Avdivka. You can see it. It's in the vicinity of the Coke plant and south of it, what is called the spoil heap. It's a big mound of slag, which is a waste product from the Coke plant at great cost. Russia has actually made it to the rail line in Septove. Uh, some of my sources say the Russians are actually across the rail line and digging in. You could say, look, they're, they're making this big move. It's significant. Uh, this could be part of, of closing off Avdivka. Only Russia could keep up this kind of effort. They lost, what was it? A thousand and eighty guys yesterday. At least a third of those guys were killed between Septove and the assaults on Evdivka. They're not doing it. And these less than company slash platoon size efforts approaching the, the zero line in a perpendicular fashion, very often in broad daylight, they're never going to succeed. They're just not going to succeed. What the Russians are doing here in Evdivka is not the solution. And let's say this thing all started to go shaped for Ukraine. Let's say the next two weeks, everything is going to go Russia's way. The gap between the fingers of the mitten and the thumb, ground lines of communication come in to Avdivka. There are dozens, maybe a score of little country roads come in from the Northwest and supply Ukrainian troops in Avdivka. If Russia tries to close the mitten, Ukraine will present them as they did in Bakhmut, as they did in Severodonetsk, as they've done in every other city. They will fight the Russians doorknob to doorknob in Avdivka. And Russia may not ever be able to insert Avdivka. No other adversary on earth 
would fight like this. There's no other army in the world that gives zero squats about daily casualty rates. And some ill-informed analysts say Russia's never going to run out of men. They're never going to run out of vehicles. Okay, I'll hand you that they're never going to run out of men, but they are going to run out of army. They're going to run out of army. They're going to run out of people who are willing to get themselves killed in stupid attacks that happen across the same axes of advance at the same time of day and try to achieve the same objectives with inadequate force postures. So watch out for this symptom. Watch for attacks like the one on Pervo and Mayorski. Watch where the battle icons are. Watch those attacks fail at the point of departure, and you're going to have a great idea of the morale of the Russian army. I think it's a, it's a misconception the Russians must have that they will never run out of manpower. They will run out of willing manpower. They will run out of victims. Of yeah, yeah, they are willing victims. That's exactly right. Who's going to choose to go fight for Putin in, a, in an unwinnable war? So just a, a note about Abdiv Kachuk. While casualties here and in Bakhmut are similar, it looks like Avdivka will will certainly beat Bakhmut as this battle goes on. But the these are much different battlescapes. There's so much open space around the rail yard in Avdivka, which Russia must cross. I noticed they didn't appear to launch any ground assaults from the south today. Is this where the force has been exhausted? They only launched assaults from the north, right? Yeah, and I think you've used the right word. The attacks against Toniki and Severne, they've been absolute debacles. And we are definitely looking at the forces to the south. And they were exhausted, attrited. As John says, the term of art, they had culminated. And they're going to have to get new units to do it. To me, the amazing thing is, I don't expect Russia to stop doing what it's doing. I absolutely don't. I don't expect Russia to do, and in fact, they're incapable of doing this. They're, and they know they're incapable, and that's why they're unwilling. Look at the road to Pervo Mayorsky, the M30. It heads west. You want to put a knife in the guts of Ukraine? You break out and you push along the M30 highway. There to the north, Navatilove and Pervomersky, there's a river backing up your right flank. Looking at the map, this is immediately suggested to me. Give me four brigade task groups and let's do it. Let's push out of Donetsk and let's push down the M30 highway and let's stick it to the Ukrainians. Not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And I think. These Russian commanders know they can fritter away their forces, one company, a couple of platoons at a time, but they dare not launch a larger effort. They tried it at Vuladar. It failed stunningly. They tried it again at Vuladar. It failed almost as stunningly. And I think the battles we see for Severne and Toniki, uh, I don't think we understand the depths of the Russian losses. 
What is unfortunate, truly, is that Ukraine does not have the resources to follow up on these defeats. Ukraine is not yet in a position where it can defeat those Russian uh, forces coming at Toniki and then not break contact with them. Clutch onto them too closely for Russian artillery to fire at you and drive them all the way back to where they came from and then some. Ukraine doesn't have the ability to do that. And again, that's on us, Alan. That is on us. In the meantime, they're doing pretty well for a force on the defensive has no air superiority, no air defense dominance, and are lacking the artillery that the enemy has. I'd say they're doing splendidly. Yeah, I, I would too. And it, it brings me to a, a, a point about bullet points, Chuck. Some at times I, I hear from listeners via ODMs and that kind of thing, or even some tweets out there that, that we're cheerleaders for Ukraine, that we never present the bad news from the battlefield. But we do present the bad news from the battlefield. It happens to be bad news for Russia almost every single day. Yeah, we do report the news. I'm just recall a Kupiansk where it was Ukraine that lost uh, an armored column. We call it like we see it. It isn't just inconvenient and a missed opportunity that Ukraine can't push back on defeated Russian units. It's, it's a complete liability. I don't see how it's cheerleading to report that, that Ukraine gets hit daily by 10 or 20 times the number of airstrikes that, that they fly. They fly in airstrikes and they absorb force. That isn't good news. Hey, do I want some of the witness war? Damn right. There, there's no doubt about it. I'm on the side of the angels here. But they're leading. I, I would say this. It, it'd be much more challenging to cheerlead for Russia. You tell me what's going right. You know, just tell me. Come on here in December and describe to me the unfolding Russian offensive that is going to take back Kiev. In your wildest dreams, there won't be another Russian offensive. There will be these peaceful attacks, and I'm going to be drawing red round trip arrows and for the next four years. That's how long it's going to take. That's not surely. I wish I had better things to say. People DM me all the time and say, it's really disheartening to hear you say that. It's not surely. It's going to take long. It's going to take that long. Yeah, you're so right, Chuck. And if we were looking at this in terms of the timeline of World War II, we're in May 1941. And the U.S. hadn't even joined the war at that time. It's, it's super early. And to go back up what you talked about in terms of this offensive, that there's a lot of reports that the Russians have about 40,000 assembled in the Abdika Theater. And there was reports from the Ukrainians that just north of there, Closer to, to Luhansk, they had 100,000. And so we know we're starting to see just the numbers that they're bringing to bear in these areas just decline and degrade. Not just that, the equipment they're bringing there is also, as, as you so well pointed out, yeah, we're talking about T-62s, which I'm sure served Khrushchev really well. Yeah, and there, there's also this thing, and it's longer term, but it's what 
John Spencer and I were talking about last summer about Akhmud. And it was Russia's in this training death. They are not, they don't have the training resources or the training infrastructure to take these mobilizations, graphs that occur a couple of times a year in Russia, help get a hundred thousand or 200,000 people at one time. They don't have the resources to turn those people into soldiers. They get delivered to the battlefield as people. I cannot imagine getting to a battlefield, not knowing the first thing about land navigation, not knowing anything about fire maneuver, firing movement, cover, not knowing the difference between cover and concealment, having no idea how to create even the rifle I've been That's who's going to be fed into this war for the rest of time. We see these BARS units and Storm Z units where the average age of a Russian soldier is 43 to 45 years old. Look, I might have been big at one point in my life, but I tell you what, by the time you're 40, uh, a lot of things have changed. Your physicality has changed, but you know what? So has your mental outlook. You can get an 18-year-old to charge, charge a machine gun, but it's pretty hard to talk a 45-year-old into doing it. And for those reasons, look, for that reason alone, when I project this four-year continuing war, I also project evaporating Russian combat effectiveness. Absolutely. And they may not run out of men, but I mean it, they're going to run out of army. They're going to run out of men capable of operating as interoperable tactical units. And they're going to run out of people who are willing to take these stupid orders. And we already see it. Every time you watch Russians standing there with a cell phone pointing at them in a big group complaining about something, you're looking at a mutinous assembly. You're looking at a situation in a Western army where the MPs would come in and arrest everybody, put them in handcuffs and send them to the brig. But Russia can't do that. They can't do it. Because if they start enforcing the rules, it'll spread. The mutiny will spread. The VDV threatened a mutiny root and branch. Things aren't good for Russia. Things aren't good. Cheerleading? I don't know. Let's try to cheerlead for the Russians next week, Alan, and see what that gets us. Okay, that sounds like a plan, Chuck. And I, and I believe God. <laughs> I know one thing we're not going to see in Avdivka or in Kupiansk, and Kupiansk is the next map up. You're not going to see retreating from Avdivka, and it's because they've controlled the city of Donetsk for 10 years. They have plenty of resources east of Avdivka. Uh, same in, in Kupiansk, very close to Russian logistical routes, very close to Russia. You're not going to see a Russian retreat from either Kupiansk or Avdivka. Maybe as the winter grows colder, maybe you'll see Russian soldiers melting away from the front in or Kiev or Velika Novosilka. You might even see Russians melting away from the front in Bakhmut. But uh, that's in the dead of winter when the it will bring us to, uh, to the death of a lot of Russian forces 
everywhere, but but specifically in in some areas where you could see Russian forces just melt away. I think especially in Orkiv, Alika, Novosilka, and depending on what happens across the Dnipro over in, in that part of Kherson Oblast. But if we do move up to Kupiansk, which we will do in just a couple of minutes' time, I want to go to Bruce and Incognito. They may have questions about Abdivka. Bruce. Hey, guys. I just have two quick points. One thing about Ukraine or, or bad news, I saw a story the other day, and it's ostensibly a good story. It's like the U.S. will be able to produce upwards of 125 artillery shells, well, 155 millimeter artillery shells a month by 2025. And then it went on to say that six months ago, we were producing 14,000 a month, and now we're producing 28,000 a month. That sounds great. But if you want to talk about bad news for Ukraine, that's less than 1,000 shells a day on a front that's 600 kilometers long. The, the whole thing is bad news for Ukraine. What's amazing is the tenacity that they're showing on the battlefield. The other thing I would say is that the Western media does a great job of putting out bad news about Ukraine. But the, the one last point I would make in terms of Russia running out of men, I, I think that's part of it. It's not just the men, it, it's their wives and their parents. There's a feeling in Russia reported that if you're in Moscow or if you're in St. Petersburg, you're getting out of there. But if you're in some small town or some small city out in the middle of the country, you're going to Ukraine. And you take a small town with 50,000 population and you get 25 coffins back. And then you get 40 guys back who have been injured or are missing limbs. And, and they're going to talk about what's going on down there. And, and that there's a point when moms aren't going to really be willing to send their kids into the meat grinder. And, and that's something to remember as well. And onward on the map. Thanks, guys. And you know what? Putin, who's the last Soveticus, homo Soveticus, he saw the result of those coffins coming back from Afghanistan. And the quiet and then not so quiet grief of the mothers. There's no doubt that was one of the factors that led to the breakup of the Soviet Union. It's not a lesson that, that Putin saw it, but he doesn't recognize it. And one of the things that props up my four-year war model is that Putin is never going to give this up, right? This was his idea. He doesn't want this to become his catastrophe or... He's going to do everything he can to win this. What's happening is the tool that he intends to win this with is just getting duller. And this winter, making this prediction, the Russian army will be worse off in the field than it has ever been in the course of this war. I'm predicting logistical problems. I'm predicting widespread environmental casualties for the Russian forces, frostbite, hypothermia, disease. Uh, these things are going to take their toll. And Ukraine is going to be in an opportunity to take advantage of these things. I don't think the war is going to be over by Christmas. I don't think it's going to be over by next Christmas. At the end of next Christmas, Russia is going to be in almost no position to do anything on the battlefield. 
when you waste your regiments and battalions and you piss them away every day by grinding up a company here, a platoon here with all their vehicles, that's not the way to win a war. And I don't see any Russian plan to win this war. Trying to wait out the West to unplug support for Ukraine, that's not a plan, right? The U.S. was defeated in Vietnam and, face it, defeated in Afghanistan because there was no plan. There wasn't a plan. There was going to be no big American offensive to take back the ring roads around the nation and pass. None of that happened. There was never a plan to do that. It means you'll lose the war. It's going to happen here for Russia. They're going to lose this war. And the great thing about Prigozhin's mutiny was Russia had to abandon whatever was its best fighting force, and it forced Putin to marry the two authors of the unfolding defeat in Ukraine. He's married to Shoigu now. He's married to Gerasimov, even though God knows what position he's in now. Shoigu's not going to win this war. There is no plan to take back Kiev. There, there's nothing like that. So we'll see. Cheerleading, I'm calling it like I see it. I'm calling it like I see it. Uh, and in addition to losing the, the, wag, the Wanger force, Putin lost the one, the one general who was probably the best general, Suravikin. He has the Suravikin line to thank for being able to hold on wherever Russian forces are in Zaporizhia Oblast. These defensive fortifications, which unfortunately Russia had time to create, and again, that's on us because we didn't supply Ukraine with everything it needed. He has Suravikin to thank for that, that defensive line that Russia is clinging to at the moment. And now that general is gone because he was a friend of Prigozhin. So to incognito and then to Will Teal and then a, a very quick look at what's happening in Kupiansk. Incognito. Yes. On the issue of cheerleading for, for Ukraine, uh, we... I don't mean we, Maria report, but we, the collective West, have Ukrainian information about Russian losses, which numerous preeminent Western intelligence services have largely corroborated as being accurate. And on the other hand, if you're so, so if we're pointing that out, we, Maria report and the collective West, if we're pointing those numbers out, and we're cheerleading simply by pointing it out. What's the alternative? Believing Russian propaganda, where every time there's a, a lethal, debilitating strike on Russian positions from storm shadows or attackums or what have you, we are told by the Russian media that all the missiles were shot down. Oh, it was just debris that wiped out the headquarters of the Black Sea Fleet. And speaking of the Black Sea Fleet, who saw coming that the Ukraine would effectively nullify and send scurrying from Sevastopol the Russian Black Sea Fleet without having an AV of their own, simply by operating autonomous unmanned surface, surface vessels? 
they're, we don't know what they've got up their sleeve and we don't want to know yet. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to hear rumors. I want to hear about it when it's happening, not in advance. Please, uh, to the doubters out there, are, is there reason to be dismayed at how badly we, the collective West, especially my country, I'm an American, let have let the Ukrainians down on supplying them with arms? Yes. Are there ways to remedy that? Yes. Maybe at the end of bullet points, we can talk about that, about how uh, to effectively communicate to your senators and Congress people the importance of support of supplying Ukraine immediately. And not only that, but you might want to also point out that every time they believe their polling numbers, it turns out that they're wrong. We had elections two nights ago that proved it. So anyhow, uh, I'll shut up. Thank you for letting me rant again. Not a rant, brother. That's, that's the truth. Ukraine is doing things. And I bang on about this all the time. First 20th, 21st century war. Right. When has a naval power ever been defeated by a nation that doesn't have a Navy that is using unconventional, novel technological uh, developments to defeat major surface combatants? And you're right. One of the things that's happening here is the information space in the West is already full of lazy journalists, of lazy politicians who predicate their statements and opinions on Russian influence information, right? It, it wasn't the storm shadow that killed the Admiral. It was debris from the missile we successfully shot down. You know, as we said in the Marines, tell it, as we said in the Navy, tell it to the Marines, right? Tell that story to someone who's going to believe it. And I, I would just say this, if people think Russia is winning here, show me where they're winning. Just point it out to me. You got 600 miles of contact. Show me where they're winning and at what cost. And uh, they took back moot. Right. And uh, that has gotten them what? Exactly what John Spencer said it would get them 10 months ago. Nothing, nothing. And we're fighting an enemy that is willing to put 40,000 soldiers in their graves to take a place like back moot of no tactical or strategic value at all. And transitioning here to Kupiansk, enjoying five to one superiority in this area of operation. They want to take Kupiansk from Sinkvika, eight kilometers, eight kilometers from Sinkvika to downtown uh, Kupiansk. That isn't even six miles, folks, six miles. They can't do it. They can't do it. Tell me where they're winning and I'll happily report it. I, I never, ever can find a place where Russia is winning, except unfortunately in the disinformation space. Will Teal, please. Hey, thanks, Alan. Quickly, Chuck, because I've been out doing uh, other uh, things and haven't been listening. If you covered this already, uh, I apologize because I noticed you, it is included in one of your maps, but the strike in Skadova on the Lotus Hotel, and the uh, fact that right after uh, the 30th of October, when Toplinsky replaced General Maka, the bloke who, sorry, Makarevich was replaced basically for incompetence on the 30th of October, and within a 
I said at the time, this is why we, this is why we just report facts. I said at the time, this is good news because it shows that the, uh, they've been losing down there. It confirms, but what it shows on the other side is problem, possibly problem because Toplinsky is competent. He was the guy who was in the VDB. Um, about a week after that, they hit a high Mars strike on a building in between Oleski and somewhere south of there. And I didn't get any report on who it was, but I speculated at the time, a high Mars strike on, on a building like that, what's not obvious, they might be hunting Toplinsky. And I guess I just want to see, are, do you think they are given the strike in uh, Skadova? And isn't that an example of how we just tra track the facts and lead? Even though if you want to hear cheerleading, I do that for you in about four hours. <laughs> Me too. No, it's, th those are those opportunities right? Where technical intelligence, overhead imagery, signals intelligence, but they all will suggest a target, especially when you're looking to take out Russian command nodes. To dot the I and cross the T, you need a human eyeball. And the information that enables that kind of a strike, you need patterns of movement, right? You need to know what officers are in there. You know what their work schedule is like. What's always impressed me is these targets get hit at three o'clock in the morning when everybody's in bed. So you're going to know they're where you think they're going to be. What also has impressed me is what side of the building gets hit. A lot of times I've seen that storm shadow had to make a big turn. It hit the, the leeward side of the building, right? It didn't hit the closest side. It went around and hit the other. Those are the things that tell us that human intelligence is, is involved here. So, and you're right before the Lotus hotel and will, we didn't touch on this. There was, uh, another target hit and I can't remember if it was a residence or, uh, but there was a concurrent report that was separate that reported the death of three VDV colonels and an 06, a colonel is a big fish. The next step after colonel, you become a brigadier general, rear admiral. It's a big deal. That really sounded to me, Will, like that might've been the incoming command element. Three colonels, that's most of your command staff, right? That's a chief of staff. That's the operations officer. And that's likely your intelligence officer. Big deal. And I didn't say that facetiously. It's a big deal. Should, should we be, because should, if you, should we be looking for proof of life video on Toplinsky at this point then? Maybe remember that Admiral, they propped up in the bed. He's okay. He wasn't hurt. He's no one's ever seen that guy again. I don't know if they got him, but. I don't forget that they came within a gnat's butt of getting Garashimov in Izium. Remember how many general officers were getting killed at the Harrison airport? Those are such important blows, especially in such a top-down micromanagerial army as Russia has. You lop off the commanders and no one's going to rise from the ranks, right? They're not. So good on Ukraine. And there's so much more going into these strikes than overhead imagery, signals, intelligence, 
there are networks, espionage networks, all throughout the occupied territories, and they are feeding the targets. One thing Chuck and I never forget, even here on Bullet Points, where we go uh, from map to map and also look down uh, from a, a bird's eye view, uh, we never forget uh, the dozens and dozens uh, of Ukrainian villages and towns and cities that are being struck every day by uh, Russian artillery. We spoke earlier tonight about the pummeling that Kherson has taken. Uh, it just yesterday, more than 100 settlements, more than 100 settlements in Chernihiv, Sumy, Kharkiv, Luhansk, Donetsk, Zaporizhia, Kherson, and the Mikolaev regions were under Russian artillery fire, damaged mostly residential buildings, a kindergarten, just generally damaging and, uh, and destroying civilian infrastructure. Three Ukrainian civilians were killed. Three others were injured. This happens every single day. And this is what Ukraine is obviously fighting for, not only to regain its 1991 borders, but to regain the peaceful, safe, secure, and prosperous life that Ukraine enjoyed before Russia invaded. Ukraine is fighting to protect every single Ukrainian, including the Ukrainians in occupied Ukraine, occupied Kherson, Zaporizhia, Donetsk, Luhansk, and of course, Crimea. We don't forget about the people under Russian artillery fire every single day. 624 of them. Yeah, it's, it, it's the way they fight. It is the way they fight. I don't know what the missile attack for tonight looks like, but I can promise you the Shahid drones, they are flying to an eight-digit grid coordinate that is that depicts an apartment building. High-density urban population spaces, those are the target. Hey, there's clearly a good guy and a bad guy here. No doubt about it. But this war has been going on since 2014. If Russia was going to win it, why didn't they win it 10 years ago? This is, they can't keep this up forever, especially fighting the way they are now. So I'm going to look forward to that Crimean beach party, actually. But it's coming. It is coming. There's no question about it. Uh, I'm going to go to Freedom for, I think, what will be the last question of tonight's bullet points, Chuck, uh, and then we'll wrap bullet points up. We'll be back with everyone as the news requires us to be here, but certainly next Tuesday for bullet points. But between now and next Tuesday, all eyes on Hairsan. Freedom, go ahead. Yeah, thank you, Alan. Hi, Chuck. So I just wanted to say, I really enjoy these bullet points. I, I get some good news because I get depressed sometimes because I, I can relate. I've been to Kursan and it's just heartbreaking to see what is going on. And I get my spirits up by listening to this Maria report and Slava Ukraine. You're here. We're there with you. Listen, we're, we're there with you. And don't let perception 
become your reality, right? That's something intelligence officers learn. It's one of the first things you'll learn because there are alternative facts. There is spin, there is deception, there, there is everything else. And there was a great tweet today, and I wish I could credit the, the person who put it together. It was a list of Russian nuclear threats for the last uh, eight months. We're going to nuke this. We're going to be compelled to nuke. This is going to escalate. It's going to go nuclear. That resonates with everybody. I was one of those kids that was raised getting under their desk in kindergarten, duck and cover, right? It resonates with people. Okay. They've inflicted the information space. Not so widely reported was uh, Russia flexed its muscles with a couple of ICBM tests. November 1, Yars intercontinental ballistic missile veered off course and was detonated. That's okay. They tried it again. October 25th uh, blew up on the pad, but they really are going to show us. They launched a submarine launched ballistic missile. It turned on Afghanistan and had to be blown up in the air. That's the reality of Russia's nuclear threat. Can you imagine if the United States went 0 for 3 in ICBM tests? That's Putin. That's, the, that's his armed forces. This fading dream of a superpower. This is going to be the end of Russia as we know it. Not tomorrow, not next year. But when this war is over, Russia is not going to be able to bully its neighbors anymore. And it is so important that fight be won in Ukraine now. Because try to imagine what a defeated Ukraine would look like. Try to imagine what Putin would do next against Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, Finland, Romania. Poland, Moldova, what would restrain him? What would prevent him from trying to realize his wet dreams of empire? Nothing would stand in his way. He has to be stopped now. And if there's any heartburn about it, he started it, right? This was his idea. He started it. And Ukraine can never prosper as a nation with Russia on Crimea sitting astride its roots of commerce. So that's why the fight, that's why we're in it. And that's why we're not going to quit. Yep. And those are facts, Chuck. And John Adams said that facts are stubborn things. And my, my corollary to that is misinformation is, is like shifting sand. And I really strongly believe that there's just like you say, there's lots of good news out there and there's lots of evidence to uh, support that Russia's losing this war. You look at what happened to Putin in Kazakhstan, and you looked at what the European Union have said to some of those other areas. There's a, there's a backbone out there that is, I just, we've talked about this constantly. We're preaching to the choir. Let's hope that we get the, the things that we need to stand up to this and that the Ukrainians get the support they need from us and the Ukrainians have the steel and resolve to, to, to fight a fight that they're fighting for all of us. Yeah, and it's... It it's on us. It really is. The trickling high Mars, the, you can have a couple of attackums. That's all on us. It's all on us. You can have a Patriot maybe next year. 
I hate to ask this question, but what are we doing with it? Really? Are they defending Omaha, Nebraska? Come on, let's call for the cheese. What are they going to be used for? Defending Ukrainian cities? Wow, let's get on the ball. Let's get on the ball. Folks, I say this all the time, and I've been told not to call everybody folks, so I got a sticker, sticky note up there. I am from Mississippi, and I, it comes naturally. Call your congressman tonight. You don't have to talk to anybody. Leave a message. Alan knows he worked on Capitol Hill. Your call's going to get logged. Be firm, be polite, and tell him you're watching. And it disgusts you what happens to Ukrainian cities every night. And you don't want to see that go on. Alan, you know the Hill much better than I do. All I know is that in the old days when I worked there, letters came in the thousands every day. I always felt sorry for our poor mailroom crew. And they all were answered. They were all logged. Uh, we knew the percent of letter writers talking about this issue, that issue, etc. All the phone calls were logged too. Someone got to the office at 6 a.m. Sometimes it was me with a cup of coffee in hand. But whoever arrived first, job one was to sit down with a pad of paper and listen to all the messages on the answering machine. And these answering machines had enough tape in them to record more than an hour uh, of callers. Imagine that. Uh, so every call was answered uh, after uh, the lights went off in the office. Sometimes we pretended the lights went off at 5 or 6 p.m., but the lights in Congress stay on all night long, almost every night of the year. Doesn't mean your senator or congressman is there to answer the phone, but an answering machine will take your call at this time of night. Call during the day. The chances are that you can even get to uh, a pretty important assistant or, or aide in the office that covers Ukraine or any issue area you care to talk about. So do make that phone call. It's easy to make. And, and I can and I what you said there, Alan. I had to take a turn at that. And the, I'll just say the phone lines then were not as good as they are now. And so you got people that had some rather scratchies and you had to rewind those tapes to hear to get the phone number and the person right. It was a bit of a guessing game back then. But uh, yeah, it, it makes such a huge difference if you can get that in there and insist that uh, they respond to you. That's a human, that's a voice and they work for us. And that's the thing that I always take away from Hills. They, they work for all of us. And your party affiliation and the party affiliation of your representative, they absolutely don't matter. You're a constituent. And generally, I found my representatives to be pretty responsive. Like I said, man, I've gotten letters back or even calls back when I thought, wow, that, I didn't expect that to happen. So you really can make a dis uh, difference. And especially with your representatives, they're only there for 24 months. They want to stay there for much longer than that. So make an impression. And again, be polite, be firm, be concise, and you're going to make that line on the call log. And uh, they will respond to public opinion. They're not going to make they're not going to die on this hill, most of them. They're just not going to. And I think some of them honestly don't appreciate how serious the situation is. 
and some of them remarkably are, they don't think this is an American fight. They don't think that keeping the bear in the box is, is necessary or right. I wish it wasn't necessary. There was this golden moment when I thought at the end of the Soviet Union, Russia is going to join the community of nations. Things are going to be good. There's not going to be a cold war anymore. There's not going to be universal tension in international relations, but that isn't the case. And the cold war was never as hot as it is now, Alan. I just don't think it was. I, I don't think it was either, Chuck. Uh, and just another reminder to uh, everyone who's going to call today or, or tomorrow morning during the day, every staff member you get, or I'll say eight out of 10 staff members you get on Capitol Hill, go to work every day because they're working for you. There are some big egos on Capitol Hill, of course. Those are the egos working for their boss, whether it's a, a member of the House or a U.S. Senator. But when I worked there, I was lucky enough to work for a U.S. Senator who believed in constituent service. And he impressed on every single one of us personally that you work for your fellow Mainers. I might employ you. I might give you your paycheck as measly as it was every week. But you work for your fellow Mainers, and you need to have that first and foremost in your mind whenever a Mainer visits, whenever a Mainer calls, that uh, you are at your best, at your most polite, at your most helpful. And I still think that is true uh, of the best congressional offices on the Hill today. I am glad to hear that. Alan, I'm sure you'll take this in the spirit it's given. I've always considered Maine to be the Mississippi of the North, but in the know, best possible way. We we don't consider Mississippi to be the Maine of the South, but you are right. <laughs> Maine, Maine is the Mississippi of, of the North in, in many ways, especially Northern Maine. But you know what Maine and Mississippi have in common? A lot of young Maine people joined the military because that is a way up, a way out, and a way into a profession. And that is why, that's why Maine and, and a lot of Southern states have more in common than, than what divides them. Yeah, the military is a common feature. Absolutely. And uh, living in Mississippi, a lot of times, it's not living in, the, in a state. It's like living in a defeated nation. But uh, the patriotism of the people is real. And uh, there is a community there in that place. And I love Maine. I've been to Maine a lot, not as much as you, but it's just a wonderful, beautiful state. And yeah. I just dig it. I was just glad to hear your representatives were of such high quality. Yeah. And Mississippi gave us, of course, Sonny Montgomery, the Montgomery GI Bill, which exactly talking about opportunity. My, my grandfather was friends with the late congressman. My, Chuck, my parents are from Mississippi. My father went to Mississippi State. My mother went to Ole Miss. Oh, he, you've come out of the closet. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I was I the only Mississippian. Wow. Complicating my checkered background was the fact that I was actually born in Boston. That, that makes me schizoid at the very least. I don't it, think I'd say that, Chuck. My ex-wives would say that, though. I think we have come to a point here where we should be wrapping up. Could probably quit. Yeah. And, and Chuck and I will be back 
next Tuesday and Thursday, possibly maybe sometime over the weekend. You never know, depending on what the news brings. It's likely, I think, we'll be working over the weekend, Alan. Glad to be working with you, Michael. Thank you so much for co-hosting tonight. Alan, my radio brother from another mother, thank you. Thank everybody for listening. And I'll pass the hat a little bit. If you have, uh, if you like what you hear, you want to help Ukraine, you want to help us get really important equipment into the hands of the Ukrainian citizens who need it. Equipment for demining, thermal cameras to help in search and rescue, uh, medical supplies, generators. Look, we do it all. And if you're an American, 501c3, and you can write off that donation. So please help us out if you can.